This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we've got all that and lots more. But first, we start with that big party we saw on the campus of the University of Victoria Sunday night. It was huge. Uh, the cops figured maybe about a thousand people at this party. Have a listen to some of this uh, tape here. This is a... Uh, this is what it sounded like, the party at UVic Sunday night. Oh, yeah. This is huge. This is like a, like a huge rager there on uh, the uh, campus of UVic. Now, that video was taken by my next guest, Kate Elizabeth Court. Kate is the editor-in-chief of The Martlet, which is the student newspaper at the University of Victoria, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Kate, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, congratulations on this big scoop. I see we, we see all the other uh, newsrooms following your uh, your big scoop here on this party. When did you hear about this? I mean, did, did people on campus know that this party was planned and everyone was going to this thing? Yeah, I mean, every year in that same area, there's bound to be parties. It's kind of customary for the first week of school. Uh, but to have it happen during COVID was... Um, like surprising so I heard about it happening around 10 p.m. and then I headed up to campus and I saw that huge crowd at 11 o'clock yeah I mean your video is incredible I encourage people to check it out it's kind of gone viral now so people can see it everywhere now this party was massive I mean were you surprised when you saw how many people were there yeah I mean for me I'd never seen a crowd like that in so long because of our pandemic situation and yeah. yeah I was just surprised to see so many people in that space and it was just like you know a crazy festival or something like that it was really extraordinary for for the times that we're in I feel yeah what was going on there is a lot of drinking going on what was happening yeah I mean the police are monitoring for drinking and they say they conducted a few pour outs as well uh but just a lot of you know socializing I think with the year of uh, online classes, people were really excited to be in person again, uh, and so the huge crowd kind of came along with that. Yeah, who organized this thing? That I don't know. Like I said, this is kind of a customary thing that happens every year, so yeah. I don't think anyone specifically organized it, but it was certainly resident students and then members of the community as well that joined in and contributed to this huge crowd that we saw on Sunday night. Right, right. And it looked like it was outside of the residences. Is that where it took place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. kind of like an area in between a few residences. So it was all in there. And I talked to one of a, a student that's living in one of the residences there. And he said he couldn't even get out his door without bumping into this huge crowd. You mean like to get to get out his door to go outside or to get out his out of his dorm and like inside? Yeah, so the like out of the residence building, so to okay. go anywhere outside to you know, um, yeah. I mean, was there was there partying? I mean, there there must have been partying going on inside the residences too. I would imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to be knocking on any doors and checking <laughs> to see if people were partying, of course. I tried to keep myself as, as distant as possible while still covering the uh, the things that were going on there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, cops were also blocking uh, some of the entrances to ensure that that crowd didn't ultimately move inside one of the buildings. Right, right. How many police were there? They looked like they were pretty outnumbered. Yeah, I mean, Saanich PD told me they had two officers on the scene and then <laughs> called in additional to support. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there were certainly more partiers than police, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, like I was looking at some of your videos, you see these two lonely cops show up, bust a party with a thousand kids. I'm like, you know, good luck. But um, were any rules actually broken here, though? I mean, you're allowed to gather outside, right? I mean, it's an outdoor party. So were any of the health rules actually broken? broken here yeah and that's exactly what the you know status p told me is that you know there was no need to shut down the party in their view because uh none of the provincial health orders right now were broken there's no order on indoor or outdoor gatherings in their size so this was technically by the provincial health orders completely allowed that being yeah. said the university started like urging students not to party after this happened um, whether or not that will actually impact people's behavior is yet to be seen, of course. Right. Okay. So it didn't go against the rules, but the university is still putting out a statement saying like, hey, please don't do this again. Is that what they basically they're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. What is your uh, your read, Kate, of the sort of mood of students as they get back to in, in-person learning on university campuses like, I got a son up there. I mean, my son goes to UVic, and, you know, the kids are excited. They're excited to be back to school. They're excited to see friends again. And I guess in some ways you can understand, I mean, there's a lot of part, uh, pent-up party demand here. I mean, people want to enjoy the, you know, they want to socialize, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the important piece to remember is that although there was a 1,000 students, uh, or a 1,000 people, I should say, at that party on Sunday night, there's 20,000 students that go to UVic. So there's also right. 19,000 students that weren't there that are also, uh, you know, have been cooped up in their room for a long time and looking forward to the semester. And now UVic has said that some of the actions of those people at the, the party, specifically around like the no distancing, no masks, et cetera, uh, could lead to that actual in-person semester being in jeopardy. So I think that's kind of what people are concerned about, is that we might be returning to online classes because of the actions of of the few. Okay. All right. Great job in the story. Congrats on the scoop, and thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the fight for freedom for the two Michaels now. 1,000 days. That's how long Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor have spent behind bars in a Chinese prison. Both men detained in China in December 2018, shortly after Canada arrested Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou. China has all but admitted the two Michaels were arrested in retaliation against Canada. And the fight goes on now to bring the two Michaels home. Hundreds of people marched in Ottawa on Sunday to show their support. And no one has fought harder in this effort than my next guest, Vina Najibula. She is Michael Kovrig's wife, and I'm very happy and honored to welcome her to the show. Vina, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. 1,000 days is an eternity when you're separated from a loved one, especially under these circumstances. 
what does this anniversary mean to you? For for you, is it just another day, or does it have any sig- particular significance for you? Well, you're absolutely right. It's uh, a thousand days, which is a grim and heavy milestone. Um, but every day is difficult, and it's a thousand days too many. Uh, this yeah. particular weekend, though, in addition to the pain and the heartbreak of uh, this milestone, what we also got to experience was a lot of gratitude and um, kindness from the solidarity and support from so many people around Canada, in Ottawa, where we physically marched together, but also people walked in support of Michael around the country and also around the world. And um, it was incredible. I mean, the emotion of that, um, I, I continue to be moved. I mean, even now, a couple of days after, I, I get caught up by how meaningful that was um, and the emotion behind the fact that this is difficult. It's almost unbearable, but people care. Michael's plight resonates with ordinary Canadians. Um, the injustice of the situation, the fact that it has been going on for a thousand days matters to people. And I hope that because of that, I hope because of all of our collective desire to bring them home, uh, that finally there will be action and the stalemate would come to an end. I certainly hope that happens. And this has been a, a thousand day journey for you and in your efforts to bring Michael home. Yes. If we go back to December 10th, 2018, the day that Michael was detained in China, what do you recall about that day? Like, how did you find out that he had been arrested? I mean, like you said, it feels like an eternity. And at that moment, I mean, shock, disbelief, uh, confusion, uh, hope that all of this would be resolved very quickly, that it was a misunderstanding. And then, of course, with every day that went on, um, a realization of what, in fact, was happening, the, the bigger geopolitical story. As you mentioned, Michael and Michael Spavor are in this situation because of the extradition case that's unfolding in Vancouver, because of the bigger um, geopol- geopolitical game that's happening between U.S. and China. And that has been um, really hard to get my head around, but also gives me some hope and faith that if that situation is resolved, if we find some kind of a diplomatic political solution, that Michael and Michael Spavor, in fact, can come back, can come home, and that all of this could be behind us. Speaking to Vina Najabula, she is Michael Kovrig's wife. Uh, Vina, what is Michael's current condition? Have you received any recent update on how he is doing? Uh, We're able to get updates from Michael on a monthly basis now through consular visits. Uh, Our ambassador in uh, Beijing, Ambassador Barton, gets to speak with him for 30 minutes. That's the opportunity that we have to convey messages to Michael and to get some news on how he's uh, enduring this, how he's uh, hanging in there. Uh, We also get letters, and uh, the last one was from uh, July from Michael, and I continue to be um, amazed (laughs) We've been together for 20 years, and um, Michael continues to even amaze and inspire me with his strength and how disciplined, how um, committed he has been to uh, maintaining a regimen of mental and physical exercise. Uh, He takes the 7,000 steps, which is why uh, this weekend we all walked 7,000 steps in solidarity with him, because that's how much he uh, walks each day in his cell. 
He reads. Uh, reading is a very big part of his day and gives him a lot of solace. Um, I mean, he's completely cut off and isolated, right? So in one of his letters, he mentioned that uh, just like in his childhood, books are now his uh, best friends again. And um, it's his way of finding some escape uh, from the realities of his uh, situation. It's incredible to think of him walking 7,000 steps in that jail cell. Like, how big is the jail cell? Are there other prisoners in there with him? Is he by himself? What are his conditions like that he's living in? Um, it's, I mean, it's hard for us to know because we get very few updates on the actual conditions. But from what I understand, it's a fairly small, windowless, concrete uh, cell. And he has ha- had other cellmates there in the course of a 1,000 days. The, the number varies. But uh, it takes some hours. I mean, he, he paces, he takes steps. I mean, this isn't walking as such. It's pacing in a very yeah. small space. And um, it's his way of, like I said, maintaining some level of uh, agency over his day, but also his uh, physical health, which is so important. Right. We saw about a month ago, we saw the other Michael of the two Michaels, Canadian Michael Spavor, was found guilty of yeah. of spying after a, a so-called trial and uh, sentenced to 11 years in prison by yeah. a Chinese court. What is Michael Kovrig's status right now? Like, he has not actually... There's been no verdict or sentence in Michael's, Michael Kovrig, your husband's case, at this point, correct? That's correct. That's correct. So uh, both he and Michael Spavor had their trials back in March. Uh, Spavor's verdict and sentencing came out, as you said, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're now waiting on uh, our Michael's verdict. But the reality, Mike, is that um, in Canadian system, uh, sorry, Chinese system, it's 99.9% uh, guilty verdict. So there's no real surprise here. I mean, of course, I, I'm hoping for a miracle, but the reality is that outcome is virtually a certainty. So what we need to continue to do is focus on our efforts to resolve this politically and diplomatically to finally bring him home. This isn't a real legal uh, case, right? I mean, what we've known since day one that uh, this is, there's a bigger context here, and the solution also will come in that uh, way through a political and diplomatic um, outcome. We saw all the major party leaders on the weekend issue statements in support of your husband and Michael Spavor as well, including Justin Trudeau. Are you satisfied with the efforts to date of the Canadian government to secure your husband's release? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. What was heartening is to continue to see uh, that all political uh, leaders and, in fact, all Canadians we're all united in our desire to bring them home and also in seeing this as unjust and arbitrary, their situation. So it's not a partisan issue, and, and I take heart in that. In terms of um, what needs to happen next, especially once we have a new government in place, is to recognize that it has been a thousand days and whatever has been tried hasn't worked. So we need to figure out a new plan, a new solution to finally break the stalemate and bring them home. I am um, encouraged by the fact that there will be few developments this fall, uh, certainly the conclusion of the judicial phase of the extradition phase, uh, extradition process in Vancouver offers an opportunity, the upcoming uh, high-level meetings between U.S. and China and Canada on the margins of 
the G20 or COP26, there are a few things happening both um, with respect to the extradition itself, but also in a broader uh, relationship between these three countries that to me may offer a window of opportunity um, to finally um, bring Michael home. Last question for you, Vina. This is hostage diplomacy, clearly, and your husband and Michael Spavor are being used like like bargaining chips in this this dispute. Uh, Chinese, some Chinese officials have suggested, well, why don't you just give us back Meng Wanzhou? Just send her back to China, and then we can work this out. Is that something that you think should be considered? Like, is that something you would like to see? Well, we're not without data, and the extradition process is, at least in its judicial phase, almost complete. So it's yeah. not just a matter of giving her back, but there will be uh, opportunities. Like I said, we'll see what is the outcome of um, that uh, process in terms of what Justice Holmes decides. But we also know that after that, it becomes a ministerial decision. The Minister of Justice has to make a decision. I am less interested in terms of what happens in that process and exclusively focused on Michael ending the injustice and the suffering that he and Michael Spavor are undergoing and finding a political solution out of this. So um, it's hard for me to say there's this way or that way. That is for our government to decide. All I can um, continue to advocate for is that we don't allow this situation to continue, that the status quo is not okay. Um, I don't want us to have to mark another 1,000 days uh, or, you know, another 600 days. It's, this has to be brought to an end. Um, we have to be pragmatic about it. There are solutions, and they have to be negotiated among the three countries involved. Mina, I'm so amazed by your continuing courage and determination on this, and I hope you are reunited with Michael soon and that he comes home soon. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thank you so much for inviting me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome back to the show. BC's vaccine passport system kicks in next week. Monday, September 13th is when the BC vaccine card takes effect. A proof of vaccination to be required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, sporting event, concert. We're becoming familiar uh, with this list now. Key news conference coming up this afternoon at 2 p.m. when we expect to get more details about how the BC vaccine passport will work. CKNW will bring you that live. That BC vaccine card is certainly a point of anger with some of the protesters that we saw gathered outside of BC hospitals last week. There are a lot of other people in that crowd, too, who are angry about all sorts of reasons, a lot of anti-vax uh, sentiment in there and anger at these crowds. And this got nasty. Uh, we saw at least one healthcare worker, a nurse, was assaulted uh, outside a hospital on Vancouver Island in Nanaimo, according to the Vancouver Island Health Authority. This is demoralizing for some of our frontline healthcare workers who are working tirelessly uh, to fight this pandemic inside the hospital. 
uh, often treating people who are not vaccinated to look outside and see anti-vaccination protests. Have a listen to this now. This is Global BC reporter Jordan Armstrong uh, reporting about the protests that we saw last week. Thursday at Vancouver General Hospital, another day of the grind for doctors and nurses trying to keep unvaccinated COVID patients alive. And they could soon have some new admissions. It's good to be here with my fellow patriots and people that uh, they see what's going on here. Like, you're not crazy. We're glad that you're here. Tell the truth, you f***ing liar. Anger. Conspiracy theories and a distrust of science all on display Wednesday. We know what you guys are sending out there and it's bullshit. The real doctors and nurses are being silent. Okay, let's speak to one of Canada's real doctors now, Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Smart, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. What can you say about the impact that these protests uh, had on frontline healthcare workers? And we saw these protests in different parts of Canada last week, notably here in British Columbia. It's got to be demoralizing for frontline healthcare workers to see these type of protests happening right outside the hospitals where they work. Oh, absolutely. You know, I heard from colleagues all week last week across the country on exactly that, just how heartbreaking and demoralized they felt, you know, so much burnout already in our healthcare works workers. You know, they've been battling this pandemic for 18 months, and now they're up against a fourth wave with so much information and this rising anti-vax sentiment. Um, and their hospitals are filling up with people who are so ill who are not vaccinated. And then to have that type of hatred spewed at them was really, really heartbreaking. Yeah, what can you say about the situation in hospitals across Canada right now in terms of the, the number of cases that we're seeing, especially among people who are unvaccinated and, and end up in hospital? Well, it's really clear that, you know, the vast majority of people right now hospitalized with COVID, especially people who are critically ill or unvaccinated. That's the where most of the rising case counts are. Um, so that's really upsetting to see because so many of those outcomes and those admissions to hospital would be preventable if people were choosing to be vaccinated. You know, we, we are seeing some hospitalizations and people have been vaccinated, but it's much, much less common. And when you look at the ICU situation, the vast, vast majority of people there are unvaccinated. Yeah, we heard about, we, we saw a lot of anger at these protests and, and at least one healthcare worker who was assaulted here in British Columbia, according to the Island Health Authority here in, in BC. What do you think about the, we've heard some calls to create a no-go zone around hospitals and healthcare facilities to outlaw these type of demonstrations from happening outside of hospitals Again, is that something that doctors in Canada would like to see? What do you think of that? Well, you know, it's it's really unusual times. You know, I've been in medicine now for 24 years, and I've never seen people protest outside of a hospital, particularly yeah. about things that aren't in control of the people in that building. You know, the, the things they're protesting, of course, are decisions that are being made by policymakers and governments. Of course, I think those of us in the healthcare profession support a lot of these ideas, but we're not the people making those decisions. So it's sort of seems misplaced in terms of the location. I think if this was to become an ongoing issue, something like that would need to be considered. I mean, we saw care being blocked, ambulances unable to access 
the hospital. I've heard of a woman in labor that had to walk several blocks to get care. You know, people receiving chemotherapy coming out afterwards, being yelled and spit on by people. And then, like you said, healthcare workers also being verbally and in some cases physically assaulted. So this type of behavior is obviously totally unacceptable. I think it's a far cry from a peaceful protest when you have this type of behavior. And if it was an ongoing issue, then, you know, different actions may need to be taken. Yeah, the uh, the people who organize these protests are saying, well, to me, like or a protest like this outside of a hospital is just is just grotesque. I mean, you've got people inside who are fighting for their lives. You've got healthcare workers who are trying to save people's lives, and and then you got these anti-vax protests outside. I mean, it's just it's it, it, it it's it's just a terrible contrast to see. And the organizers that will say, well, the reason we did it was because there are some healthcare workers who agree with us that they are against vaccine passports or they they have concerns about the vaccine. I mean, and your experience as one of the top doctors in the country, I mean, are there, I mean, there must be a a small segment of healthcare workers who are, who have similar views, would you say? Is that, is that fair to say? Um, I would say maybe total outliers. Like that is definitely not the opinion of physicians and nurses. You know, when you look at just even vaccine rates in provinces that are publishing that for doctors, it's 99%. The vast majority of physicians we're hearing from are calling for more public health intervention and stricter measures because, as you said, they're the ones inside of these hospitals trying to keep people alive and nurses very much the same you know we've we've heard from the president of the canadian nurses association they're reporting huge support from nurses so you know of course are you going to have the odd person who doesn't agree yes but is that representative of what most canadian doctors and nurses think no i it's a small small minority and i think people that are trying to say that doctors and nurses are being silenced that is again total misinformation it's not accurate. Right. Speaking to Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association, uh, these protests uh, we saw last week were a point of interest in the federal election campaign. Here is uh, Justin Trudeau, the liberal leader here, speaking about threats against healthcare workers. I'll play this for you and get your thoughts here on the other side. Here's Justin Trudeau. Nobody should be doing their jobs under the threat or uh, or, or uh, under the threats of violence or acts that put them in danger. That's absolutely unacceptable. But it's not just at political rallies that this is happening. There are healthcare workers across the country who are getting hassled and intimidated and bullied as they're going into work to keep people safe and alive. Okay, Justin Trudeau on the campaign trail there talking about the protests we saw outside of hospitals. Dr. Catherine Smart, what do you think about that? Do you think some healthcare workers on the front lines are, are concerned about their, their safety after seeing these type of protests? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's people that have been followed, yelled at, spit at, sworn at on their way to and from work. Um, so, you know, I can only imagine how terrifying that would be that, to feel physically and emotionally threatened like that. Um, and again, you know, these are, are people who are already emotionally exhausted. So to me, it's just so demoralizing to see people treating each other this way. And yeah. to what end? Right. Okay. We uh, here in British Columbia, we have already had an order for mandatory vaccination for workers in long term care. The healthcare officials also indicating that a wider mandatory vaccination system is set to be employed as well. 
that may impl- may include a lot of frontline, if not most or all frontline healthcare workers in British Columbia. I wonder about your thoughts on that as the head of the Canadian Medical Association. Would would you support mandatory vaccination for doctors, nurses, other frontline healthcare workers? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the CMA several weeks ago, we did call for mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers because they are such a key component of keeping patients safe. And, you know, one of the things that underlies our profession is the concept of first do no harm and, of course, ensuring a safe space for patients. And we believe we accomplish that by having all healthcare workers vaccinated against COVID. Yeah. Do you think there could be some disagreement among different sectors of healthcare workers and different healthcare work workers unions around mandatory vaccination? Or do you expect kind of unanimity on this or some disagreement on it? I'm sure that there could be some disagreement on some levels, but I can tell yeah. you that overall, again, the vast majority of unions and, and people representing healthcare workers have come out in favor of this. You know, yeah. it, the vaccines are very safe and effective. There's really no reason not to be vaccinated. Um, so it would be hard to really make an argument against, against vaccination in the healthcare setting. Yeah. Have any provinces brought, already brought in mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers? As you've described, we're seeing it in certain contexts, like, for example, Alberta Health Services has now said you must be vaccinated to work in their facilities. We're Mm. seeing it in some long-term care. So it's starting to come up in in pockets um, across the country. And I think going into this fourth wave, I expect that we'll just see that becoming more and more consistent. Yeah. Okay. So you expect that to, I mean, this is always provincial jurisdiction. So sometimes we tend to see kind of a patchwork of of different rules from province to province, but do you anticipate that mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers will probably roll out across the entire country? Is that what you're kind of anticipating? Well, I certainly hope so, because I think that's the appropriate thing to do. And I I think the more we see people starting to make that decision, the more that people will come along. Uh, You know, absolutely, as you've said, one of our challenges is a patchwork of recommendations and approaches because of the provincial jurisdiction in health. So that's made having a consistent response to covid challenging in Canada for sure Um, but I think you know again there's lots of reasons to have mandatory vaccinations for healthcare staff and and I think more and more that will become the norm. Okay we're watching it very closely thank you very much for coming on today I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.